podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. Now, what a week it has been. Sunday night, we're looking forward to a relaxing week. Then the news broke from Tariq Panja, I think it was, at the New York Times, that the European Super League was about to be established. Then all hell broke loose for a couple of days. We monitored and saw what was going on. And we were struggling to explain the complexity of the issues at hand to those football fans and the football community. Um, and people were just anyone who was interested in the issues. And so we thought that a great thing to do would be put on a public webinar, which we did. We had over a thousand attendees. We brought together some of the world's top sports lawyers who gave up their time freely uh, to explain um, and to listen to their colleagues and understand what was going on and provide some clarity on the issues. Um, we had over 650 attendees who asked over 100 questions. We recorded the session. It's on the website. You can access it uh, for free. Um, go to the homepage, you can see it. Um, and the session went on for two two hours and 20 minutes or something along those lines. We have along those podcasts <laughs> would be a good guess. And the feedback was amazing. We had sports executives on there, accountants, lawyers, sports journalists, government officials, some of the protagonists involved, which is exciting for us. We haven't spoke to any of them, but it was interesting to note that they were tuning in as well and taking note. And it was a demonstration of what law and sport is about. We always say to people we're about content and community. And, you know, I like to think we've delivered some excellent content from our world leading experts, but we also brought together people as a community to discuss the issues and provide some clarity on what was going on. Now, whilst a lot of people are saying that this is over, it's clearly not over. There's going to be lots of regulatory issues that are coming off the back of this, whether it's a reform uh, or review of regulation whether it's uh, sanctions that may be applied to some of the protagonists involved, maybe it's counter litigation, whether it's uh, contractual issues that are taking, you know, that are going to come to the floor, whether it's a relationship between players and clubs. There's a lot going on and it will continue to go on for the next few weeks. I'm delighted to say that the speakers cover a lot of issues that are pertinent, not just for this case, but they're pertinent f just for the sector overall. So if you're a football fan, if you want to know about the legal issues in football, this is an outstanding contribution from the speakers. They were wonderful. And I'd like to give a special thank you to them. They, they, you know, responded to the call to action. They gave up their time very freely. And I can promise you all of them are extremely busy. Um, you know, and they gave up, you know, time in advance, but also, you know, the time of the, of the webinar. Now, if you love what we do, if you take value from the podcast, and I have to say we've had over 100,000 plays now from the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening it to law and sport thank you for supporting us if you do like what we do please do tell people about it please do share on your social platforms or forward it on to anyone or give us a wherever it is a thumbs up a, you know a, a, some star rating on itunes or on, on spotify it makes a massive difference i believe that we're one of if not the top sports law podcast in the world and must be up there with over a hundred thousand uh, plays now um, and well over fifty thousand downloads on the various applications and so forth so if you do like it you know, please do tell people about it. it means a lot. Now, the only reason we could do what we do is because we're independent. Because no one pays to write for us, no one pays to speak to us. We don't take commission for referring people. We purposely have a business model in which we can help build genuine community and ind independent review and analysis. So, and we've talked about this before on the, 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 the FIFA Law Review with our wonderful editorial board and our advisory board who are amazing, the authors who write for us. Now, if you love this podcast, 
if you enjoy this discussion, you're going to want to tune into our Football Law Conference, uh, which is taking place in May. More details are in the in the in the information below. We thought we had a finalised agenda. <laughs> Obviously, recent events have now changed things, so we're just updating our agenda to just uh, to address what we believe to be some of the ongoing issues. But last year we had over 650 attendees. The feedback was amazing. Again, we do a similar thing. We bring together the world's best people from different stakeholders, from different backgrounds, to discuss the most important issues facing the legal issues facing the world of football. So if you love this, you're going to want to tune into that. So please go to our website, go to the events page and have a look at the details. If you like it, we'd love to see you there. Other than that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, morning, yeah, evening, afternoon, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for tuning in. And if you like this, the other thing I'd say is please do give a shout out to any of the any of the, the speakers. If you do like what their contribution, please do give them a shout out. I'm sure they'll appreciate it, whether it's on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever. So thanks so much for tuning in and thanks for your support. Hi everyone, thank you very much for joining today's webinar. Um, we have to wait for a few minutes just as we allow all the participants, uh, all the attendees to join the session. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean Cottrell, I'm the CEO of Law in Sport. I'm delighted that we have somewhere in the region of about, I think nearly just under a thousand people who have registered for today's webinar, so it may take a bit of time for everyone to join in, but as we do, um, I'll just run through some ground rules. So um, if you haven't tuned into a Law and Sport webinar before, we try to make them interactive as possible. If you do have any uh, comments, um, you know, if you want to chat to people, please be very polite and respectful to each other. I know there's a lot of emotion around this issue, but please be sensitive that um, one, um, uh, you know, we're hoping to get share and um, inform people, share as much knowledge as possible and inform people. And everyone's given up their time freely for today to do this. But also there are um, people from the media present as well. So you may end up being quoted in the wrong place. Um, so please be mindful of that. But if you do have any questions, we will be taking and there's plenty of time for questions today. Um, if you haven't already submitted a question, a thank you to everyone who has, we've got a lot of them to get through. You can use the Q&A feature. So please put it in there rather than the chat. If you start to put questions in the chat, we may miss it, so we may not get to you. So we'll try to get you where we can. So, as I said, my name is Sean Cottrell. I'm the host for today. I'm the CEO of Law in Sport. Um, we're gonna be discussing the European Super League and its legal fallout. Now, it's a rapidly changing uh, <laughs> situation at the moment. Um, what we saw, and so for those of you who don't know, that Law in Sport is a knowledge hub and global community, over 30,000 registered members um, from around the world. And we have leading lawyers who and people working in sport business who write and contribute and speak at our events. No one who's speaking today is being paid to speak. They've all given up their time freely. So we're incredibly grateful because they're all extremely busy. So thank you very much for that. Um, but from a personal perspective, monitoring uh, what was going on over the last few days, it was clear to us that people really didn't have an understanding of what the legal and regulatory um, implications, as well as some of the commercial, um, could have if the Super League was successful and what action the relative parties could take against the Super League um, or by the Super League to prevent others preventing them from going from running. So to do that, and to get some answers to this, I thought what we should do is bring together some of the world's leading lawyers, sports executives, uh, sports business people together to provide some clarity. So I'm delighted to welcome um, some of those people today to this session. 
So what we're going to do is the format is we're going to start off with giving a brief summary from each uh, from our first five speakers on um, their developments from their country and what's been going on. What are the legal points? What are the political issues that have been going on? And we're going to try and wrap it up in about five minutes. And then we're going to move on to what I've sort of labeled or we've labeled as our sort of like specialist areas of expertise uh, for, for those with a, a really specific um, um, uh, expertise and knowledge base in areas to really shine a light from a employment law, competition law, from a finance perspective, from a media rights perspective. So hopefully collectively we can all get a better picture of, of what's going on because I'm still as confused, I think, as I was on Sunday evening. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. If you do, um, you know, please do tell people about it. Right. So we've got a lot of speakers and what I'll do is I'll introduce um, all of them. I think uh, I guess I'll go run through it all very quickly for you. So we've got Alexander Engelhart, who's a sports lawyer at Arndkek Sibeth. Devastein and stop laughing and everyone who's everyone who's heard me present I can never get people's names right um he's from Germany um and actually I think what we'll do is I'll just do introduce one speaker before they speak and then we'll just move on otherwise we will be here for 25 minutes just introducing the speakers so Alexander just to start us off could you um provide an update from Germany what's been going on there so the news broke on Sunday what's been happening I'm happy to do that John, thank you very much for having me. Thank you also to Law and Sport for, for doing this, for bringing people together on this um, interesting topic and what's been a very exciting last 72 hours. Um, you've asked me for a German perspective when you initially contacted me. Um, and I think in, in this regard, probably the main question on, on many people's mind was uh, when, when seeing the, the members of the so-called Super League, uh, why are Bayern and Dortmund not a part of this? because arguably over their success over the past uh, 10 to 20 years in European football, they should have been part of this elite um, group of, of clubs. Um, and um, so what are the reasons for them not to join? Um, I think reason number one could be um, that uh, they perceived a legal risk uh, connected to, to joining uh, a rival league. Um, now, we've heard all about this over the last uh, 48 hours. We've heard about potential sanctions from the governing bodies against uh, players and clubs. But we've also heard from a few competition lawyers who said that uh, sanctioning um, clubs and players for joining a rival league is uh, somewhat of a tricky um, issue and um, could be uh, difficult to justify. And uh, we'll hear hear from the, from the competition lawyers uh, on the panel later about these um, things in, in particular about the ISU case, about the FIBA and EuroLeague case. Um, as many of you know, in, in European basketball, uh, a private league already uh, exists, a well-established league over the past years. Now, um, I think that legal risks, perceived legal risks, were not the main reason why Dortmund and, and Bayern decided not to join. I think... Um, um, one uh, reason and reason number two that needs to be looked at is um, the regulatory framework in which Bundesliga clubs operate. Um, many of you will have heard of the famous 50 plus one rule uh, before. It's a league wide rule um, introduced in the 90s already uh, when German uh, football clubs who were traditionally organized as member run uh, associations were allowed to spin off their professional football departments into commercial entities. Um, that rule says 
that um, at all times, 50 plus 1% of the voting shares of uh, a professional football club organized as a commercial company need to be held by the parent-run member association. Um, arguably, that rule has um, prevented large takeovers of German football clubs uh, by foreign investors. Um, arguably, it has kept um, the bond between clubs and um, fans in Germany closer than potentially in other countries. Um, maybe it has, had, has contributed to lower ticket prices, higher attendance numbers uh, in Germany. Now, uh, the details of this uh, regulatory framework are less, uh, much less romantic uh, than it sounds, but um, it is true, and German executives, officials in sports have um, mentioned this over the past two or three days, be it Mr. Seifert, uh, the CEO of the Bundesliga, or uh, the CEOs of Bayern and Dortmund, that this is um, that there is a deep connectedness between clubs and the social um, uh, environment in which they operate. And I think that is something that is uh, potentially unique about Germany. At least it is unique in the sense that it even led to a regulatory rule um, with regard to the 50 plus one rule in Germany that doesn't exist in other countries. And I think reason number three that people should take into consideration is the timing of this and uh, the fact uh, that we're living in a pandemic, uh, unfortunately, still to this day. Um, since the start of the pandemic in March 2020 and the uh, lockdown that came afterwards, there has been a huge uh, public uh, debate in Germany about the role of professional sport in, in society and especially uh, professional football. Um, some have asked whether it's fair that professional football gets to continue to play while um, so, uh, Alexander. others... Sure. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm going to have to be brutal with the uh, timekeeping just to just to give the other uh, uh, speakers a chance. But the, we have a question from Jane Purden. Um, it might be relevant. She says, has the German model also inhibited investment in German football? Hence, the Bundesliga considering hiving off non-live rights to separate vehicle in order to get necessary investment to develop them. Well, if I um, would have to answer to, to Jane's uh, question right now. I think there are many people who say that this has restricted investment into the league um, over the past years, and there have been attempts to modify this league, uh, this, this, this rule over the past um, years, um, and the, the debate will continue. Uh, this is part of the, of the debate that was happening over the past 12 months. Um, some right. people may have heard of the DFL task force which was initiated over the past months that came up with um, meaningful recommendations how to innovate uh, German football while keeping its social um, integration into society alive and um, is also talking about uh, reforms of the 50 plus one rule without abolishing so, it but retaining so, so it. So, so just to be clear then, so from a German perspective, you're saying basically the social element of, uh, of the big issue was a social element of football, potential legal action, a background also that in Germany, there's been a, uh, quite a say, proactive stance from the competition authorities when it comes to sport uh, uh, across the board. Um, and then this, this backdrop of the investment in football being it. Thank you very much, Alexander, um, sure. for, for that roundup. Uh, Reyes Belva, who is um, the founder and a sports lawyer, of Reyes Elva um, Sports Law. 
over to you from a Spanish perspective. Delighted to, to welcome you as well. So hi. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, <laughs> this is a good time to be a sports lawyer. No, I think <laughs> it's a good moment uh, to be uh, quick. I think it's, it's good to divide the impact uh, into football institutions, clubs, uh, La Liga, Spanish FA, players, uh, supporters and government in Spain, very, very quick. Uh, the institutions, uh, several clubs, uh, La Liga, also the Spanish FA have already criticized and acted against the, the new Super League with the public publications of different statements uh, to maintain the European model of football and our pyramid structure. No? La Liga sent today a document to clubs um, outside the Super League, of the rest of the clubs, explaining um, that what Florentino Perez said about the economic situation, uh, that is not true, and they are going to have a meeting, so they are acting in, uh, inside, the, the La Liga, inside La Liga. Uh, also, uh, we have football matches today and in Spain, and some clubs are going to, to wear a t-shirt uh, with earning, the football is for fans, but that is my opinion, but the football is for fans today, tomorrow, and also yesterday. So it's something that uh, if we really committed with football uh, for fans and football for all, uh, all your our Spanish institutions should act. You no, know? the statements and gestures are really, really good. But I think, and we we have learned a lot these uh, uh, two days. Uh, it's time for for action. No. About players, I miss the voice of the players in Spain, uh, like in UK, for example, well organized. No, uh, of course, the union in line of FIPRO, but nothing more. So, I think uh, there is a big difference uh, between Spain and and UK. And supporters, uh, we have in Spain uh, FASFE, is an Spanish association of football fans and football stakeholders. And uh, we saw different uh, statements from FASFE and also for different associations uh, from Atletico de Madrid, uh, also Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, saying that they are against this model of Super League. And also today, uh, FASPE, this uh, association, sent a letter to the Sports Council uh, in Spain asking for a review uh, of our sport, uh, Sports Act, Sports Law, in terms of property, in terms of the property of the clubs, uh, fans' representations, and uh, a stakeholder, no? to be a stakeholder inside the Spanish uh, model. That is not new, but this is time for to to review again no? and finally the government uh, we have also several statements against the super league with uh, political parties with the ministry of sport there was a meeting also and the conclusion is that um, the total rejection of this european super league and the message to try to reach an, an agreement and uh, between the institution and to dialogue no that's uh, a very soft message, no? And uh, however, we have a, a, the main difference that we have in Spain with the rest of the countries um, involved, I, I think is the preliminary ruling uh, from a mercantile court in Madrid um, issued a request by a company, uh, the European Super League company ESL, is a limited company uh, registered in Spain. Uh, and the founders of this company are the 12, uh, the 12 <laughs> founding clubs of, of Super League, the 12th uh, one. So uh, the Spanish judge on Tuesday 
issue this preliminary ruling stopping uh, FIFA and UEFA from taking any immediate action or making statements against the Super League, and also tells FIFA and UEFA not to exclude Super League clubs and players from any international national competitions in which they have already been regularly participating or have the right to participate. And also the judge orders prohibits FIFA and UEFA and the members for announcing, threatening uh, to announce or adopting any disciplinary measures against clubs or its uh, players or officials uh, participated in participation of this Super League. So a big debate in, again in relation to European Union law, competitive law, you are going to talk about this with the rest of colleagues, public law, sports law, federal law. Presumably as well the enforceability of that uh, yeah, across across the uh, Europe. Um, yeah. And uh, sorry, and one thing, Alexander, just bringing you back in, thank you very much for that, Riaz. Alexander, just bringing you back in, um, and forgive me if I missed it, um, the government position in Germany, have they, have they come out and said anything or? I'm sure that some members of parliament have felt the urge to, to comment on this, but I'm uh, right now not um, fully aware of um, any position there. Of course, um, since the German clubs did not join, uh, arguably there was less uh, of a need for uh, German politicians to come out um, who might have other things to worry about um, right now, but I'm not aware of any um, of of any political statement in that regard. Thank you. Because the reason why I ask is it's quite interesting when you look at from what you said in Germany with the fan ownership side of things, uh, you know, being seen as, as as a problem from investment perspective, and then on the other side, in in current from what we've just heard from Reyes, obviously Spain pushing. Uh, the fan uh, pushing for more ownership and control and that's been definitely been a uh, hot topic moreover um should we who should we come to next i've got uh should we go to stefania from a from a uk perspective stefania genesis of la vida sports law over to you Thanks very much. Sport, sorry that's all right um so yeah i think that obviously as everyone is aware the the six premier league clubs that were involved in this whole european super super league have all now withdrawn literally within hours of, e of each other yesterday so i thought maybe just very quickly recap how we got to to that stage so obviously sunday night esl is announced and it was received with immediate criticism so i think everyone saw phil neville on sky sports that was repeated many many times that um basically saying this was a criminal act against football fans in this country and thereafter you know came backlash from fans from the media from the government from football governing bodies the fa the premier league and even prince william as the president of the fa came out and tweeted about the fact that we need to protect the entire football community so literally all stakeholders had a perspective and then in terms of like the sequence of events we know that yesterday a meeting took place between the prime minister the fa the premier league and fan groups and essentially the pm made it very clear that the government was 100 percent behind the football authorities in taking whatever action was necessary to stop these plans going forward and then almost went further than that and said that the government itself if it wasn't possible for the football authorities to to essentially um get this wiped off the table that they themselves would take whatever measures were necessary and some of the things that were floated and i don't know you know whether this would 
ever actually come to fruition was the Prime Minister's official spokesperson said that they were considering such things as preventing players from getting work visas, from withdrawing police funding for matches, changes to taxpayer support for clubs. So um, pretty significant intervention there. Then there was also a meeting between the 14 Premier League clubs that themselves were not participating in the um, European Super League and obviously overwhelming criticism from their front. They said that they entirely rejected the plans and then they were considering all their options. And then sort of aside from the club regulatory body and um, sort of government perspective, the fans themselves in the UK have obviously been super vocal, um, you know, with the Leeds-Liverpool game, the vans gathered outside the stadium and even the players who have been put in a pretty difficult position um, wore the T-shirts, you know, in open criticism of, of, of the plans. And then we saw obviously the Chelsea-Brighton game where the fans blocked off the access for the team into the stadium and delayed the kickoff and um if I might be wrong but I believe that it was shortly thereafter that Chelsea kind of in, indicated their intention to withdraw and they they publicized that they were preparing the the documentation to withdraw and that was met by like screams of joy by by fans outside um the stadium and then after that it was pretty much a domino effect in the UK for for the club so we saw you know thereafter Arsenal well Man City then Arsenal Liverpool Man United etc followed suits um I've got to just say that from a from on a personal perspective um when I was asked on Sunday do I think that this is actually going to go ahead um I genuinely felt that there was a chance that it would at least progress from this stage. And I'm shocked by how quickly these clubs have capitulated. Um, they decided to break away. They presumably took legal advice on what was to follow, obtained a huge amount of funding, um, ended memberships with the ECA. A lot of the executives withdrew from their positions at UEFA. And, you know, you'd think that there would be at least some degree of backbone to stand by what they had begun and, and perhaps maybe even see the competition through so that they could get the fan engagement and some excitement around it. But, you know, what we saw was that there wasn't even a unified front in backing down. It all happened just almost, you know, one by one, which has to call into question the, the leadership of this whole initiative. And, you know, quite frankly, if you're going to pull such a controversial move, then you have to anticipate the backlash. And maybe they didn't anticipate the degree of backlash and it was the cumulative um, criticism from various different stakeholders which led them to you know decide to take this action and one final comment just because I think it's very important that um, from a diversity perspective I can just imagine what these boardrooms etc looked like and you've got to say that maybe if there are a few more women and a few and a bit more diversity on those you know amongst those making these decisions that this might have panned out in a very different way. Well, yeah, I think I agree. I think I think we I think we'd all be in agreement that football could do with uh, more diversity in its leadership um, across the board. Um, thank you very much for that. Now, um, I was going to go to Patricia next, but before I do, Riaz, I know you're on a tight time frame. Uh, you just wanted to contribute something else. So, thank you very much for that, Stefania. Riaz, you wanted to um, discuss uh, the women's game quickly in relation to this and what impact this will have. Over to you. Yes, thank you. And, and in connection with the diversity, Stefania, that's great. <laughs> you know, I, I, I support this. Uh, it's something to women's football because uh, Super League is a matter of solidarity and also good governance. And in the first statement of the presentation of this Super League, um, they had the idea to create a women's football Super League too, no? They had. Uh, only I would like to, to say that uh, women's football is not a bullet point uh, 
to add at the last minute in a statement. Um, and my message is that, no, please leave women's football uh, a part of this fight. No, it's something to develop in another way. So thank you. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant statement. Thank you very much. And thanks for your insight and, and observation on that point. Um, right. So, uh, and just to say, I'm delighted to say that we've got over 560 people who attended. And I know, and just to acknowledge, I know that Jane, you've got your hand up. I'm not sure if you still want your hand up. But Jane Pern's got a hand up to ask a question. We'll come to you. And um, we've also had 25 questions that have been submitted, plus I think about another 30 afterwards. We, so the session's due to like run for uh, as long as we can, basically for about two hours. So we've got plenty of time to, to, to run through his questions. And um, I will try to come to pertinent questions as I'm reviewing, but also, um, you know, given the panelists uh they do respect and listening to what their comments uh are um so we'll try to make sure everyone gets their questions answers so next up to bring a perspective from france we have patricia moison of moison advocates um patricia over to you yes um thank you very much sean for having me inviting me in this fascinating law in sport webinar uh right on time and uh change things are changing every two hours except in france um, why French club uh, didn't came came up in in this? Uh, uh, I don't know if it's a project or or uh, let's say an adventure. I don't know. Uh, mainly for the same reason as the German clubs, I would say. For first, for the social uh, social uh, environment. Um, uh, not only we have to, 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 to remember that in France, we have the yellow vest, you know? So uh, in France, fans are very important. And the way this Super League has been created without any social dialogue with fans, with players, with coaches, with referees, with that, it, I, I would say that is one of the principal concern of French clubs, but also, um, to understand the rules of the game in France, it's important to remind that France is, is pretty unique in the sense that sport activity is considered as a public service. The state gives a delegation of power to the federation. That means, means that the federation are acting on behalf of the state. They are not not only under UEFA and FIFA uh, uh, legal framework, but mainly they are acting on behalf of the states and the states give them the monopoly of organizing competition in France. So it is a very, very strong legal uh, framework. And that from my perspective, uh, uh, explain why the, the primary feeling in, in France was facing this fear. Fear for what? Not only for sanction, because we, for sure, for sure, French club would have been sanctioned by the French Federation. And this sanction is not a sanction Then you can go, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to challenge it regarding competition law. It's different because it is a public service with a very strong social, uh, uh, perspective, but also um, fear because uh, the French club, uh, I, I'm not in the secret of why PSG decided not to go, but I can understand that their worry and their concern is also 
on uh, the, the, the national championship. If you have one or two clubs who go, they will, they will be sanctioned for sure. But what about the ch national championship? And now in France, we are facing not only COVID, but we are facing a big, 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 big um, issue and problem with uh, the TV rights. So this, it, it was right impossible in that time to create a war between two or three big clubs and the others. That would be not only a war, but destroying the whole system. So in France, the, the reaction uh, political, the, the President Macron uh, said already, it's here, he said at the very first hours, that's impossible. And, and, and uh, French club and the French Federation and the French League, everybody agree not to, to, to participate in this uh, uh, adventure. Um, and the, 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 the fear was also uh, that there is a finance, the, the business, the, 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 the social, and of course the legal, legal fear. And the legal fear, maybe we're going to talk with uh, later on, but my view is not only sanctioned toward the players. I, I, I don't believe this. It's sanctioned toward the federation. For me, the, the right uh, way to think about is how UEFA or FIFA can sanction the national association. And in France, our national association would be between the states on one hand and between a sanction coming from UEFA and FIFA. And that's just impossible to face. Even if competition law, you can argue, have a lot of argument. But it, 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 that's why I can, I can say the main, so, main, main explanation why you don't have any French club in the, in the, on board. And that's thank you very much. That's really enlightening, and I think it, it sets. And I, you know, I remember years ago doing an event. I think Chris Anderson, where we one of the places we met was at Edgehill, and we were discussing what is football, which I think is a pertinent question. What is football? Uh, is it the Marcus Moyers described sportainment, as he would call it now or phrase it? Um, and if you can see already. Um, just from a national perspective, the very different stances the governments take, mm. and that adds mm. such a level of complexity to, to, to this issue. Thank you very much for that. It was brilliant. Um, next up, we have uh, Stella Roberti, who's a sports lawyer at Studio Legal uh, with us. Thank, thanks very much, Sean. Uh, so to give uh, a quick snapshot from Italy, uh, which I think is one of the protagonists of this uh, adventure, as uh, Patricia defined them, um, starting from uh, uh, the, 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 the very latest developments, you may have heard that uh, both Milan, AC Milan and Inter have expressed their view that they're considering a U-turn, like a withdrawal from, from this Super League. Uh, Juventus also, as you also uh, put in the link uh, in, the, in the chat, uh, has said that perhaps uh, uh, there are limited chances that the project can be completed as originally envisaged. So even Juventus is, <laughs> is putting you know, your, their hands 
uh, forward. But uh, why this? Where does it stem from? It stems from a huge criticism that has arisen uh, on the one hand from the public, the supporters, and indeed all clubs other than the three clubs involved in this Super League. Uh, and why this? Because um, from the club's perspectives, um, even though this um, initiative would not substantially affect the, you know, the low-level clubs of the Serie A, uh, this would, would have had an impact on the, the mid-level um, clubs which are in, in the ranking, like Roma, Lazio, Napoli. Why? Because they would they would have seen themselves prevented from huge financial resources that uh, Inter, Juventus and Milan would have received uh, other than uh, as a result of sporting merits. So this was really um, criticized as, a, as an initiative and seen unfair. Uh, on the other hand, looking at the reaction of uh, the very um, um, head of uh, the league, the Serie A league, the, the, the federation indeed, but also coupled with the reaction for the first time of the prime minister, so from the government, uh, they as well um, took a robust stand against this initiative. And uh, uh, from and the, 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 the president of, of the league and of the federation even threatened to uh, kick off, kick out from uh, the national competitions of these three clubs. Um, plus, they today, I mean, uh, recently this morning, uh, they also stated that they're considering uh, um, implementing rules in order to add uh, an unwritten rule whereby uh, clubs competing in the national competitions, national championships are also compelled to um, to, to compete in the UEFA competitions. Uh, so that, that's, that's, uh, that's another piece of, uh, of the story. Uh, but making a, a short step back and uh, uh, linking to what, uh, as a link to what Pat Patricia was mentioning, uh, it may be, uh, you may wonder why so much criticism was arising against Juventus. And the reason is because at, at least as regards the national level, Juventus was also the protagonist of uh, um, a very important, significant and delicate U-turn as, re as regards the, the, the commercialization, the sale of the TV rights. Uh, you may have heard uh, that they have uh, supported and negotiated, they were the leaders of negotiations for months um, to have to, to sell 10% of a new co uh, of the league, uh, which was aimed at, uh, uh, which was a new company for the commercialization of tea rights. And uh, uh, there was, a, 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 there were three investment private equity funds led by CVC who were uh, even available and were really about to, to sign an agreement whereby they would put one 1.7 billion euros in for, to get 10% only of, of, of the shares of this new co. And uh, Juventus all of a sudden, now in March, uh, rejected this proposal and uh, also convinced other six Italian clubs to say no, of uh, Serie A clubs, to say no to this, to this project. And this has resulted in, in yeah, problems in uh, and and uh, lost profit potentially of, of the civil rights so this perhaps explains also why this was really 
uh, seen badly from a national and international perspective. And thank you. And um, and from from the fans' perspective, are the fans calling for for again greater ownership uh, or influence of ownership, uh, similar to other parts of Europe? That's for now. It's not part of uh, of the discussion. Uh, okay. we, it's, it's a system very different from uh, uh, from other countries uh, that, uh, that that we have seen. So, uh, and of course, the rights are separate from uh, this uh, Super League uh, uh, initiative. Uh, but this, for now, uh, at least from uh, from the pack, from the supporters, is it's not quite uh, and, the very hard. And, and did we see any players come out and say anything? Um... Of course, uh, many have <laughs> now. Many have uh, just as supporters said uh, this is uh, unfair. Especially, what? Mm, yeah, they have different views. I have not seen. I've had only seen criticism from players, not support. Uh, so, uh, also because of the threat for all the championship players to uh, no longer to compete with uh, uh, Lukaku and Ronaldo and, and Donnamura. And this would, of course, but perhaps we will debate uh, later on. Uh, I mean, the, the, the actual exclusion of the of these top three clubs from the from the national competitions would result in a in a huge um, you know, loss of, of the value of the competition in terms of TV rights, in terms yep. of sponsorship. So that would deprive uh, resources to all other stakeholders of, Brilliant. of football. So. Well, thank you very much for that. Now, um, our competition expert has had to nip out, but he's going to be back in a minute. Um, so to send me a message. So, and, and I'm conscious, I believe that John... Murzak, you see, I think you've got to shoot off in about 15 minutes or so. So if it's all right, everyone, we'll come to John next. Um, and then I'd really like to get into. So some of the issues, just to recap then what, we're, what we've just heard, is this tension between, obviously, as we're always hearing about, the relationship between the commercialization of sport in whether, you know, typically through currently the, the media rights um, and the ownership and, and really what is the appropriate way for clubs to be managed and the, and the balance between government intervention uh, or interference um, and support of football. And, you know, depending where you are across the world, it changes quite greatly. But it seems to be that this is sort of focusing everyone's attention in terms of what is the role of government um, and, and, you know, what is the appropriate way to commercialise and who gets that. But also, uh, and we can come on to this, what the were players, why players, um, as Patricia said, players, coaches, referees, other people weren't involved in any of the discussions, the other stakeholders. But John, from your perspective, looking at this, one of the questions I asked you, and maybe you can touch on this from a from a regulatory perspective about what's, you know, the key word that you would have lit up your ears was sanctions. Um, <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know, John is the head of sport at Littleton Chambers um, and is a barrister. Um, John, can you give us a, your sort of interpretation from a, from a regulatory standpoint in terms of how you see all this playing out and the intersect between uh, you know, issues with UEFA, FIFA, um, the leagues? And also, if you have time, and, and maybe it's one for others, what duties did anyone have if there were members of the ECA and members of the exec committee of UEFA um, to not use confidential information to their potential commercial advantage? And could we see any actions being taken around that? John, over to you. Uh, well, Sean, first of all, thanks for having me on at such short notice. Um, and secondly, if I can answer all those questions in the next five minutes, um, then you think of me as uh, being, being greater than I deserve credit for. Um, can I just start off on the basis that um, the current situation from a sports lawyer's perspective 
is um, like being at the centre of a Venn diagram, that we have uh, football-specific regulations domestically uh, at European UEFA level, uh, um, globally at FIFA level. We have uh, national laws in place. We have supranational laws in place, certainly in terms of the European Union. We have potential caste jurisprudence. And then we have specific sectors in terms of employment law, law, even public law that arise. So um, it, in, in some ways, it's never going to be a straightforward um, answer to the question posed. But let, let's deal with sanctions, because what was mooted by UEFA fairly rapidly after the announcement was that there would be a ban on players playing in international competitions for their country. So you're looking at a ban for playing European competitions, World Cups, and potentially competitions around the world. And of course, from an English perspective, that brings into light the principle called restraint of trade, very similar one within um, civil laws across Europe. And anything which is a barrier to an individual carrying out their profession is prima facie restraint of trade. And as a matter of public policy, that is unenforceable. It is only enforceable, though, if um, that uh, sanction or that step, that barrier, is um, no more than is reasonably necessary to a particular legitimate interest. And that rather begs the question, which is kind of almost a philosophical question, is what is the legitimate interest that's being sought to be protected here? Because if you, if you listen to fans, you listen to commentators, it's about fairness of competition, about giving everybody a chance to compete. But on the other hand, what restraint to trade doesn't allow, it doesn't allow the protection from a competition from another source. So it doesn't allow you to say that you can't set up in competition, be it as another company or be it as another league. Um, and, and the difficulty that I've had in relation to this sanction. This sanction has been designed and aimed at players. Players themselves haven't actually done anything wrong. They just happen to be under contract and have to remain under those contracts if they want to remain at their, their clubs. And um, also, the effect on clubs would be, presumably, to create a barrier for them signing particular players. So potentially, meaning they had to pay more for players because they're going to miss out on World Cups and endorsements. And over here, like I said, we, we call it uh, a, a, a sort of no more than reasonable to protect that interest. In Europe, it's called proportionality. And proportionality of sanctions cannot be everlasting and last forever. I mean, potentially, uh, what's being mentioned is these players would never play in a, a World Cup, even though they might only have one or two opportunities in their lives. And that, as I understand it, was the preemptive motion that was filed in various courts by clubs, essentially to put a massive spanner in the works in terms of UEFA's potential uh, sanctions. And I can tell you, because I do this quite regularly, that getting interim relief, a form of interim injunction against that, is relatively straightforward. So that seems to have been well thought out uh, from the club's uh, perspective. Can I move on to the next point? And I'll try and rattle through this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that in terms of um, the, the overlap of people who sit on boards with the UEFA and the ECA and as shareholders in the Premier League, for example, 
um, one of the points that's arisen is uh, how is it that um, sort of comprehension information planning uh, in terms of what UEFA intended to do the day before that announcement, this Super League is announced. And alongside all of that, is, of course, the revenues that are generated. And confidential information is obviously a protectable right. It's a proprietary right. And I've spent some time looking at UEFA's disciplinary regulations. And it is an express duty in there that um, you may not misuse confidential information. And there are expressed duties of a fiduciary nature uh, in there. And that is reflected also within the uh, um, Premier League's rules in terms of a duty of utmost good faith. Uh, and clearly there are steps that all those bodies could take if they think that that information has been abused. Uh, and let me sort of now just finish, because I think in some ways events have overtaken sort of where, where this debate started. And I just want to finish with this, because the public not only have succeeded in having mass apologies, but we now see resignations from chief executives. We see uh, sponsorship and commercial partners pulling out um, in terms of clubs in the, the, the premiership. So um, this is a mass movement against these plans. And of course, what mass movements want, because they tend to be knee-jerk, is they want heads-on spikes. And the question, which is a really interesting question, is that Seraphim at UEFA has said, kind of welcome back to the fold. We now need to work together. But there will be a huge backlash saying they are in clear breach of their fiduciary duty, in clear breach of their regulatory duty. And there will be other, there'll be clubs here domestically, 14 who met the other day. There will be um, UEFA who will say, we have to reassert our integrity and our, our regulatory power. And there's a whole range of disciplinary sanctions that unquestionably are open now. But, but there's anything from, let's say, a mild reprimand and a warning all the way through to a ban. Now, that's not going to help um, matters, but, but the cynics amongst us might think this was never going to come to fruition in the short term anyway. They only plan to bring this in at the end of next season. This is not Premier League in 1992. And um, so the question is, um, you know, one for debate, whether this was grandstanding, albeit with egg on one's faces publicly, in order to gain more control over the Champions League competition. I mean, that's, that, 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 I, that, I, that I suspect could be part of it, although it has backfired spectacularly in both um, social fans and commercial terms. Thank you, John. Um, with this, though, the... <laughs> One of the things, and Graham, I'm going to come to you because you're you're nodding or shaking your head. I can't work like doing a bit of both. I think yes, no, yes, no. But the uh, it'd be great to get your perspective. But before we do, one of the things that uh, maybe we can touch on this, and I said thank you all so much for the. I'm trying to work out when to interject with the various questions, but I think we'll just part them uh, for ten minutes or so's time uh, once we've heard from the other speakers, or and, and then just rattle through them as quickly as possible. Um, and thank you, uh, Helena. I have seen you and David who've got their hands up. We will come to you. Um, the, the the question for me is that again, we take we take sanctions against players for bringing the sport into disrepute and for other breaches quite readily and quite quickly. And it'd be it'd be really interesting to see how this pans out from. Um, particularly with all of the introduction of various standards of ethics that are expected at UEFA level, at FIFA level, from executives working in football to see if there's any ramifications from that perspective. But Graham, 
you were um you can tell us now if you were nodding or (laughs) (laughs) i i was i was very much agreeing with john in relation to the sanctions especially those that were threatened against players it looked not only premature but um frankly unlawful um those against the clubs in a post ex facto matter um or manner um looks much more realistic however what one is really dealing with are breaches of contract here. And, you know, what I think the regulatory authorities are going to have to assess is the balancing feature of how do you sanction significant participants in a way that is actually uh, proportionate and meaningful, but doesn't of itself unbalance the system um, that you're seeking to protect and move forward. You know, at its heart, Um, The essence of what um, has offended many people is that football is a collaborative business where actually the participants have to engage with each other. And what offended me was that this particular endeavour actually flew in the face of that. And what what would be quite interesting in some of these um, uh, breaches of contract arguments that may ensue, and I actually think they'll actually probably be behind closed doors as opposed to publicly, will be representations and behaviours in the period leading up um, to the announcement, because obviously this wasn't invented overnight. This was prepared many months in advance. Um, but coming on to my specialist area, um, because I think that's pro- possibly at the heart of what this was all about, and that is the financing. Um, and I think there were two elements here. One, um, one is actually probably the environmental side, and the other is the long term. And the environmental side is clearly the financial distress that's been created by the pandemic, because many of these clubs have run their businesses in a fashion that um, I suppose and planned on the revenue either growth or stability that they'd experienced historically for many years um, of since the broadcasting era, um, and that they assumed that things would continue. And the pandemic comes along, and and when they're looking to um, grow their businesses at the same time, they suddenly find that they are sapped of a huge slice of income. Um, So in that environment, if you go back to, I suppose, the middle of last year, the environment looked really, really quite bad. And uh, many governments produced um, financial uh, provisions, the CCFF, which was taken advantage of by Arsenal and Spurs, and they raised um, 150, 165 million on the basis of um, ratings from rating agencies and the still bills notes, um, which just required your business to have a reasonable standing as at December 2019, meant that those clubs were able to, if you like, fill those holes on a temporary basis. So what is it that the the scheme was built upon was actually the smoothing out of those loans over a 23-year period um, on the basis of a rating by a rating agency. And the only way you can get a rating from a rating agency over a significant period is to have recurring income. And the only way that you can in the modern world, look at recurring income of that nature is to actually look at whether or not relegation is a real risk or a potential risk for those in 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 in, in the system. And actually, um, because it is a very competitive and an increasingly competitive environment, it's a real risk. And therefore, um, I think that they came up with um, the idea of 
um, adopting the franchise system for two reasons. One, to satisfy the financing opportunity and to deliver a very large number, i.e. an amount that would plug the hole um, and deal with the current distress, but also facilitate the clubs going forward in the new system. The other side of the opportunity is obviously taking advantage of a business where, in fact, you don't have relegation and you can count on recurring income, um, and that improves the capital value. Um, and that's where, if you like, the um, that's where the opportunity came in. I think, if anything, um, this 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 project looks like two things to me. One, it looks like it's late, in a sense, because if it had been when there was real distress, i.e. in sort of April, May, June of last year, um, I think they would have had a better chance. I think it was a bit slow. And I think it's been badly presented and some of the architecture doesn't look quite right. Because um, one could understand a situation where you're looking to provide, if you like, smoothing over a longer period. And you could put forward some architecture which was more um, digestible. But actually, they led with that which was the most objectionable to the most number of people, which was the, if you like, the franchise element. And, and, and Graham, the interesting thing, and maybe this is a great point to bring in Katerina uh, Petrovic, who's, um, uh, and I always say your name, I'm sorry, Kat, she's going to kill me. Like <laughs> every time we do a session, I shake shame on me. Um, but many of you will be familiar with her because she's been commentating uh, furiously over the uh, as an expert on breakaway leagues and has written a book on the topic um, to provide some insights into this. Um, uh, it'd be interesting. To, how do you define the market? Because here, what we're talking about, Graham, from your perspective, we talked about this from um, on the on the panel that we had on financing at the uh, at both the annual conference and at the football law conference. In terms of the finance of football, we're talking about the what is the market of football and these when they're looking at you know uh, as it acts in this financing, it's um you know depending on how you look at the business of football, it's like it could be sort of a private equity type of standpoint looking at the business of football and long term financing, or you could have this sort of longer social let's say uh, element and responsibility in which case profits don't matter as much and therefore the money you need is less because you're going to reduce your cost base naturally rather than just look for growth which seems to be you know. The, the, the common practice in, in football well I'm, i just to answer you on that um I, I unfortunately i think that you can go into football with the greatest of i suppose philosophies but at the end of the day it is a business and you are employing people in a competitive environment and it's global so if you're not competitive in your jurisdiction the chances are that your business won't 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 flourish i mean i i, I don't want to um, be too critical but the um, the Football League is it operates a, a, a very balanced environment and it's not particularly businesslike in or, or able to sustain its growth. And, you know, it is a dog-eat-dog um, world out there. And I do think that um, the way in which the business of football is generated is from that broadcast receivable and that that is about, if you like, sustainable growth built upon of new technologies. And I think that at the root of what the, the this breakaway was looking to do was to capture probably a tech company as a broadcaster, probably with OTT partially in mind, to actually try and almost monopolize um, that area of uh, as a significant product with the financing 
structures of not so much private equity, but more actually probably rating type insurance led low cost interest rates to facilitate the clubs to actually break away from the pack and be almost, um, you know, uncatchable. And, and that's where you start to get a dominant product um, backed by, uh, and what's actually really interesting, and I don't know if any of the, the broadcast people are, are, are out there, what's really interesting is the, the one component that was not properly identified was who was the broadcaster that was going to deliver the revenue? Because I found that really interesting because I, I actually think if you take it from a global basis, I would have assumed it would be a tech company like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, who actually would go out there and really run with this. But they, they may have had um, more sensitivity and decided not to, to jump in until they saw how the, the groundswell appeared. So, 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 so the backdrop to all of this, is, so, so, you're, so it was really interesting though, so finance obviously being a, a key factor, the insurance, the credit rating agencies, um, you know, one of the big problems that we've talked about in the past and all the events we've done is the access to good capital in football seems to cause a huge amount or lack of access to, to, to good capital, they say, causes a huge amount of problems uh, across football. So next we're going to go to Katerina, who is um, an expert in competition and Europe or European law, but competition law, uh, especially for today's purposes. She's a reader in sports law at the Manchester Metropolitan University. And she was the author of EU Sports Law and Breakaway Leagues in Football and has spoken previously on this, fair enough, a few years ago at one of our conferences on this very point. And then next we'll go to, to Sean Jones QC to find out you know, your perspective from the employment side. Katerina, over to you. Obviously, you've been refining your thoughts on this uh, in real time, it seems. Um, what do you make of, of what you've heard for the parts you, you joined us? And, you know, what are the, you know, um, you know, the, the, I think the um, competition authorities, um, the European um, Commission were saying that this is something they may look into and politicians were saying the same. What's the latest from your perspective in your thinking on all of this? My, my perspective has not changed since the very start at all, uh, because when it started, I have said that uh, this looks like another hoax to me um, and it just might be that. And uh, then I started having my doubts uh, because uh, things have happened that haven't happened before in all the other breakaway threats that we have seen. We have seen clubs withdrawing from the European Com uh, Club uh, Association and uh, the ECA was actually the vehicle through which they controlled the governance of, of European football, club football in Europe um, in a UEFA club competition committee. So that was a major step. And then they also filed lawsuits. So, um, you know, it kind of started looking like something completely different. And uh, on the other hand, um, I was saying also yesterday then before the, um, the uh, group uh, has uh, disbanded that, uh, um, you know, the, the lawsuits can be withdrawn easily and ECA and UEFA would probably accept them back, the clubs, and it has happened. Uh, Chafferin had not wasted time last night to welcome clubs back with open arms, which is a little bit too easy for my taste, uh, that there are no consequences at all. Um, so now we are seeing simply more of the same. Uh, the clubs will be back, probably back to the ECA um, and probably back to that position of influence and uh, that is what we are seeing in practice. Uh, from the point of view of competition law, this was obviously uh, a, a very uh, ill-conceived project. Uh, and I cannot believe that clubs did not know that 
clubs who have obviously good lawyers that can advise them and also JP Morgan, uh, what, what investor would invest into something that is subject to such massive legal and, and practical and political risks uh, that they have taken. So the entire thing, uh, when you look at it uh, and when you summarize it, the way that they ignored UEFA's uh, uh, regulatory rule to actually ask for approval under Article 49 of UEFA statutes. So they have completely bypassed that. Um, and if they had asked, um, then the ball would be in UEFA side of the court. UEFA would have to come up with a proportionate, non-discriminatory, transparent set of conditions for these clubs to fulfill. And then they can get the approval and join uh, or, or start their league, whatever that league is. Uh, but, but they haven't asked it. They just kind of simply decided to ignore that. They have alienated every single stakeholder. They have not really discussed this with anybody at all. Um, uh, now, starting from, from that, and as I said, they must have known that the, the closed league is illegal. Um, their branding, just the branding, if you look at it, is kind of, uh, it's amateurish. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, somebody made within, you know, two minutes of playing on a computer. Um, and uh, what kind of Super League is that with three countries only? When you talk about Super League, you think about something a bit more massive, something a bit more... Um, uh, so, so, so you're suggesting that... European so, so your position was, because I must admit, I'm in agreement with you, that I thought on Sunday, I thought, oh, no, here we go again. And then yeah. uh, I thought we didn't have to give it too much attention. And obviously, when we saw the website and the public statements, I took it much more seriously. Uh, and thought we should look into this. Um, yeah. From a, um, but so now you're basically saying that you, yeah, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm so sure still about what's going. Yeah, I'm still, yeah, I'm really skeptical. I'm not sure we understand the full political uh, issues at hand because they're not in the public domain often. Uh, but obviously, some great journalists doing some digging around at the moment. Who there's a bunch of them doing some fantastic work in this area. Um, the from from the competition law perspective. Um, do, do we think that do you think though the commission uh, uh, would look into though for example the structure of the ECA obviously they've got an agreement with um, a memorandum of understanding with UEFA but doesn't this beg into question you know there has been um, an increase in the, the influence of clubs uh, UEFA level and uh, um, FIFA level um, do you think that the that this is going to cause um, where before, you know, maybe the competition authority thought, you know, things are ticking over nicely, everything's running, they've, they've had the pandemic. Do you think they're going to take a fresh look at the, 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 the makeup of football across Europe or not? I'm not really sure, but uh, I can tell that um, there is a, obviously a, a, an equivalent um, case pending for six years before the commission and they're not starting the investigation. That is FIBA Euroleague case. And perhaps the commission has, or, well, because the commission has already said that they are not really going to uh, interfere in the football because the uh, national courts are already handling it. Um, uh, maybe it will be an impetus or, or just a, a kind of a good momentum for the commission to open up, finally open up the proceedings uh, in the case that uh, concerns a sport that is popular, but is nothing like football, yeah. it's basketball, and that, in fact, uh, involves all the same issues, you know, yeah. issues of governance, 
issues of the abuse of dominant position, issues of preventing uh, players from participating in national team competitions. So we have all the issues in a little bit less controversial setting. So that might be, this might create that momentum and that would still be good enough for, at least for us as lawyers to get some uh, answers and answers that you already know, we just need them. Uh, we, we need to hear them say it. So, got, um, thank you. I'm going to bring in because I've been waiting quite quite patiently. And I'm going to, as I said, we've got we've only got uh, 58 questions in the chat <laughs> to get to try and get through. So that'll be something if we can get through even half of those. But there's some great ones in there. So I do acknowledge that you've asked them, but I think it's important to get these different perspectives before we get into uh, and David and. Aravind, um, I can see that you put your hands up. We will get to you, I promise. Um, it's meant to be on the hour and it's my bad timekeeping, so apologies that I've let it overrun slightly. But Sean, one of the, the key points here is the, the obvious lack of consultation when we talked about stakeholders was the, um, the, the players and the managers. So um, Sean Jones QC is an arbitrator, barrister at 11KBW and a judge. Um, uh, Sean. Can you Absolutely. give an insight? So immediately, obviously, you put some stuff out, some great comments, as usual. If you don't follow Sean on Twitter, you should. Um, but uh, you put out some great comments on Twitter about this. But from your perspective um, and from employment law perspective, what was immediately your reaction, given that all of the the attention that was given when you had, we had Man City essentially on the verge of being kicked out of the Champions League with their FFP case and all of the conversations around certain players being able to terminate their contract if they were to be kicked out of European competitions? Well, I, mean, I should start by saying I'm a Chelsea fan. I, <laughs> so I did try at the last minute to withdraw from this webinar, but you wouldn't let me. Um, the other thing I am is a director of Chelsea's landlords. Oh. So when the league was saying, if you play in the ESL, that's all you're playing. And Boris Johnson was saying, if you play in the ESL, you won't be playing those games in this country. As you can imagine, that rather got our attention as it suggested they wouldn't be playing at Stamford Bridge anymore. So um, fortunately, that seems to have receded. But the big point from an employment law point of view, if you focus on players uh, in particular and players who are unhappy rather than the players who would be content to play and were therefore facing sanction, which is what we've dealt with thus far, uh, if you were an unhappy player, then there were really three things you might have wanted to do. You might have wanted to get out. In other words, terminate your contract. You might have wanted to opt out. So you might, like Gary Lineker, have said, well, I'm going to keep commentating, but I'm not going to commentate on those games. You might, as a player, have said, well, I'll play, but I won't play in ESL games. Play me in any other competition. Well, you might have wanted to speak out, which some did, and that has consequences for employment law too. So just barreling through them in a kind of grossly oversimplified way. So far as getting out is concerned... I don't think there's any real doubt, and we all seem to agree that the clubs have done something which is likely sanctionable. I think what the clubs have done is very likely a repudiatory breach of the contracts of their players. So we're in a really interesting moment, and I'll, I'll explain why I think that in a second. I'll give you something of the detail. But if they've repudiated the contracts of all of their players, their players are at this moment in a position to say, not for very much longer, unless they take action, but at this moment, they're able to say, well, we're off. That's it. Uh, you've, you've terminated our contracts. You breach. We accept the breach. So let me just spell that out in a little more detail. So John Mazan, as usual, is right, of course. You have to bear in mind that there are tiers of obligation and there are tiers of obligation and regulation which affect termination. So 
in the standard form Premier League contract, there's a clause 11.1, which allows an employee, a player to terminate the contract if there's a serious breach of terms and conditions, which this I'm going to say arguably is, but that's done by way of notice. There's an appeal process and then the eventual release of registration. At FIFA regulation at level, there's an entitlement to terminate contract with just cause, the consequence of which is that there should be no consequences of any kind, uh, either in terms of, of uh, compensation or imposition of sanctions. And if you asked yourself rhetorically, would FIFA likely think that players terminating the contracts with clubs who were going into the ESL might amount to just cause? My guess would be that they might well think that amounted to just cause. And then certainly in this jurisdiction, at least, we've got a common law doctrine of repudiation. So if your employer does something uh, which fundamentally breaches the contract of employment, that brings the contract of employment to an end. So what might they have done? Well, the first thing is they may have breached an express clause. So in the standard form premiership contract, there's an obligation at clause six that employ the employing clubs must observe the rules the rules being a term which includes the Premier League rules, FA rules, UEFA and FIFA regulations and statutes. Um, when one looks at the Premier League rules, there is a, there's an express restriction on the competitions that members are allowed to enter. So without the Premier League's express permission, you can't just set up another tournament and participate in it. And as Kat has already pointed out, Article 49 of the UEFA statutes gives UEFA effectively the sole ability to sanction competitions. Now, whether that works from a competition law perspective, not really yeah. my area, but certainly in terms of the express to the statute. So it does in terms of competition. To, yeah, you have to apply. You, you have to ask UEFA. If you set up your own tournament and it involves games in the European territory without UEFA's uh, permission, then you're in breach of the UEFA rules as well. So the clubs owe an obligation to players to abide by those rules. And if they don't, you then ask the question, well, is that a sufficiently serious breach to repudiate? I think the answer is almost overwhelmingly likely, yes. But in any event, to focus on what you said, Sean, if you go into this without consulting players in circumstances where they may personally be subject to sanction as a result of playing for you, you one might ask the question, does that breach the obligation of mutual trust and confidence, which is implied into every contract of employment, no different in sporting cases. And again, I think there's a very strong argument that it does. Why does that matter? Well, it matters in particular because you can't cure that breach. As a matter of English and Welsh law, once you've breached trust and confidence, that's it. If, even if you then withdraw your club from the ESL, that doesn't heal that breach. So at this moment, it seems to me, players probably have a right or a very strong argument for saying that their contracts are being repudiated. And would you think then that that could be, you know, in this circumstance, if you were, let's say, a savvy player with a savvy agent, <laughs> you'd be having a, uh, uh, some conversations <laughs> to try to maybe renegotiate your terms yeah. of employment? It's like a bugle for agents. <laughs> I mean, I'd be kicking the door down. To have this conversation and if you were someone who was stuck in a dispute with your club where you wanted to move on and couldn't well i mean in those circumstances of course you'd want to go i mean the consequences were very severe you could be even if, if you think about being sanctioned for participation at a national level that has onward consequences so if you want to come and play for a team in this country um, 
you'll need a visa and you're only going to get the visa if you played the sufficient number of international games. So it's actually reducing your yep. value uh, across the European market. Now I'll deal with the other two points really quickly because I know yeah, yeah, I, I tend to bang on. So, <laughs> so far as opting out is concerned, as a general rule, an employee can't offer part performance. So you can't say I'll play in these games and not those games. And the standard contract says you're obliged to play in any game for which you are selected. But I think there must be a good argument that if the consequence of that is that the club and you are going to be in breach of UEFA regulations, that there may be, it may be covered by the principle that you can only give lawful and reasonable orders as implied terms. So that might have been possible, but it's academic now. What isn't is speaking out. So if you, if you said to your club, I think what you're doing is unlawful. I don't like it. I don't want no part of it. And they then treated you badly as a result. That would almost certainly be a protected disclosure for the purposes of whistleblowing legislation in this country. If you speak to the press, that wouldn't be a protected disclosure. And the standard term in the contracts, the premiership contracts, provide that you mustn't write or say anything which brings the club into disrepute and that you should, if you can, give advance notice to the club of what it is you're going to say. But whether or not any club would um, have the audacity to try and take action against a player who's spoken out <laughs> these circumstances seems to me to be incredibly unlikely. And again, I think it would be likely limited by, Im by implied limitations and circumstances where what the club was seeking to do was unlawful. And also then we can see a situation with managers, coaches, et cetera, with depending on the terms of their contracts, um, they may have similar provisions in place. Yeah, almost exactly the same situation. Brilliant. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, um, we're going to come to David and to Christopher. Maybe you can both intersect at this moment in time. But David is the former head of uh, media, uh, media rights at BBC Sport or Sports. I'll get this wrong. Um, he was the head of sports media rights at the BBC. Um, as also a consultant at the law firm Shoesmiths and has got his own consultancy. Um, David, now you spoke at a number of events before and I, I sort of always come to you to sort of provide, um, let's just say... A light entertainment. A entertainment. But, uh, but, but you, you, you look, um, I would say that you look at, at the piece from a media rights perspective, you kind of always take a step back and analyse what the wider trends are going on. No doubt because it's what your job is, but also I just think you have that uh, great perspective. Can you tell me and, and, and everyone else who's in the session what your take on this was, particularly Graham's view on terms of the technology provider, potentially or a tech company being the uh, essentially the partner because we don't know much about this and what you've seen in terms of is what Perez has been saying about the the, you know, the reduction in in uh, you know the younger generation let's say tuning into sport is that true are we seeing that, that the media rights values are uh, curtailing and there's a huge problem there that they need to fix yeah no th thanks Sean um, I don't have a Chelsea shirt in the background but I did name my son Thierry Henry after the <laughs> Uh, sorry, Henry, after the great Thierry Henry, who played for Arsenal and Barcelona. So that's two of the dirty dozen clubs covered off there. Um, I think just you know, from a commercial media rights perspective, it's useful just to look at the context of all of this going on. I know Greg mentioned COVID, so I won't talk about that. But even pre-COVID, um, media rights, certainly in Europe, were on a, a downward trend uh, with a feeling that yeah, the, the, the Netflix and Amazon OTT revolution was pushing um, the power and the spending ability of the big pay TV companies who, who driven media rights inflation was reducing that power. 
so it was it was really interesting when um, you know Perez obviously came out and said that one of the drivers for this was the fall in 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 the media rights environment. Uh, if you look at the different markets across the the big five, you know, some of some of the previous speakers have touched upon it. Italy is you know is is a mess. France is is even more of a mess. Uh, Germany is, you know, relatively stable, have, having just done a, a domestic deal, but was down. Uh, the UK, the last deal was down, and the next one for the Premier League is expected to be down again. And then uh, I suspect, yeah, the, the Spanish market is going to be down when those rights come to, to come to the fore. So, in, in in a falling market, the way to try and maintain or increase revenue is to do something different. If you do the same thing, you know, the answer is going to be less money. So, so Perez, you know, if you put aside all the real motivations around control, et cetera, what Perez said did make a lot of sense in that by creating this new, new entity uh, and something different, it has the potential to stimulate the, the media rights markets and potent, potentially drive value of this property. I think it's important to note, however, though, if, if you look at European media rights, it's, it's very much a broadly speaking, a fixed sum game. So if he's taking money into the European Super League, the chances are he's taking it out of other football properties, which would, in this case, most likely, A, a obviously UEFA, but B, the, the national markets. So if you look at, say, the Premier League, uh, whose rights tender was, you know, is about to be launched, uh, and I, I think I posted on Monday, <laughs> there goes the Premier League tender, um, the damage that a Super League could have potentially done to the Premier League would have been huge because you're taking out all of that jeopardy that you get for European places. And doesn't so that raise the, the question? Finished, that, sorry, David, I was going to say then that raises the question something we can pick up for the lawyers. Would there potentially be a right of action, you know, essentially if you harmed essentially this, this next auction by taking this action in breach of the regulations, that there could be some potential claim for damages or financial loss if there's. Well, been- well yeah. Uh, I'll let the the the, the lawyers answer, answer that question, but for me, there's no doubt that those six Premier League clubs control more than 25% of the total value of the football market, which I know that Competition Commission regards football as a separate market to sport, so there would clearly be you know, the potential for action there. Um, but the interesting thing for me, I can I can absolutely see why the Spanish clubs who are massively in massive debt and the Italian clubs who are struggling, um, as I think it was Stella was talking about, you know, trying to sell their rights and sell private equity stakes, etc. I can see why they'd want to create something different. But the Premier League clubs, but by joining this, are effectively were, were effectively reducing their relative advantage over other European clubs because the Premier League is still relatively strong. And if there's going to be a global league that's not manufactured in this way, it's likely to be the Premier League, uh, given its you know, it, its relative strength. So from that perspective, it so- didn't make a huge amount of sense. Um, obviously, from the American owners and the NFL type model, etc., reducing of risk, it, it made sense. But it was interesting that it was Chelsea and Man City that broke cover first because they're not really driven by the money. They're driven by, you know, Man City is uh, an instrument of soft power for Abu Dhabi and Chelsea is an instrument for um, 
Abramovich to be able to live in the UK should Putin decide he doesn't like him anymore. Uh, they broke cover first. And I, I just want to also pick up on the, the French issue in Paris Saint-Germain. I know that they were put under huge pressure to join this. Uh, but what hasn't been mentioned is the Qatar aspect here and the fact you've got the World Cup in 22. And again, PSG is all about soft power. So the last thing Qatar would, would want to do at this point is upset FIFA. Um, and I know so, I'm tight for time. C yeah. Can I just say, sort of say one more point, just can. following on, uh, which, which is this whole ad hoc feel of this and why did they not have a media partner in place yeah as people have talked about you yeah, know would it make sense to be amazon or apple or, or whoever and i think absolutely it would because the, the the value of this is in the global market it's in india it's in china and these other big markets not so much in in europe where the fans were effectively being disenfranchised but why you know, if they'd had a, had media partners in place, if they had actually had a PR strategy, which they don't seem to have had, they would have had at least had some outlets that were supportive of them. If if there were any arguments for this, certainly in the UK, there there was nowhere for them to be heard, and it just got drowned out. In, David, in a, doesn't doesn't this sorry in this in this point though? You raise a great point, which is and for what Perez was saying though, that, that essentially they were saying, look, we care more about people who aren't in proximity to the actual ground in the sense because that's where the, the the growth is then we do it against the people that essentially got us to the party right? mm. we, seem to, we seem to be you know when we look at the relationship between sports betting and there's some interesting discussion to be had around whether they were going to permit um you know more advertising from betting companies etc on that as well um that the, the, you know the, one of the, the growth in in um uh media rights value has been because of the relationship between you know the sports betting uh industry and again that interest if you get these more as they were saying the bigger teams playing against each other more frequently if that could create a a greater influx uh or opportunity i guess for the for the sports betting or the, at least the data to be sold off that um and i want to be in chris because chris has been sitting here patiently and, and then we're going to go into the quick fire questions and there's questions for everyone in there um chris anderson you obviously been a prior practice lawyer. Um, you've worked in-house at um, Man United uh, for a period as a consultant. You've worked um, uh, as head of legal at Everton. You've worked at Brighton and Hull of Albion, um, as well as within the ICC. What is your take on all of this <laughs> in terms of listening to what everyone else is saying? What was it? What, what... Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. We're playing. We're playing. Um... You know, dirty, dirty dozen bingo um, with David, and I was, I was, I was thinking back, and in my private practice days, I, I'd acted for five of the six, um, and subsequently, of course, have worked at Man United and and at Everton, who were on different sides of who were on who were on different sides of of this debate. Um, and just to briefly touch on one of the points, David, uh, that you sort of raised in relation to David and the the, the broadcast, the broadcast contract and, and breach of contract around that. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. I don't think I don't think any of the clubs would be. I mean, they all have obligations under Premier League rules to 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 provide 
you know, the services required to, to deliver under the existing Premier League broadcasting contracts. Um, those are, of course, as David pointed out, about to go out to tender because I think the, 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 the right cycle ends at the end of 2022. And interestingly, if you look at the Premier League regulations, if any club was wanting to leave the Premier League, they would have to serve notice by 31st of December this year, which would take effect at the end of next season. So that would have coincided neatly with the um, with the with the the, the new broadcast the the, the new broadcast um, situation. So I don't think there was ever a danger of any of the six failing or doing anything now which would cause breach of the current contracts, but uh, open question as to whether they would be able to, 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 to impact uh, in relation to the, to, to the next broadcast contracts. So just wanted to sort of briefly, briefly pick up on that. Um, I mean, from, 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 from my perspective, um, you know, and I, you touched on some of the places I've been and, and, and you know, international governing bodies and, and most recently been working for a national, a national league in another sport. Um, it, 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 yeah, it is what I think one of the most fascinating things for me that has come out of this has, 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 how, has been how the discussions seem to have turned UEFA into the good guy. Um, and specifically um, how UEFA has, has somehow been portrayed as a, as a champion of, of uh, fairness in competitions and giving everyone a chance. Um, because, you know, I, I had to look at it just out of curiosity when this whole thing started a couple of days back. And if you look at since 2000, so 21 years, there have been 84 Champions League qualifying slots from English football. They have gone to teams outside the, 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 the ESL six on four occasions. Um, and actually, if you look four, three of those were in the early days of the 21st century. Newcastle United twice, um, Everton, Everton once. So actually, if you start in 2007, only Leicester has ever taken a Champions League spot from outside of the of the of the big six so i've got a, a sort of an open question on to what extent do we actually have this fairness in competition and access to the the top level of the football pyramid uh, at, at the moment um as and that, as a, and, and that raises a great point as well because we were looking at this as a team earlier looking at the new chap the proposed you know reforms to the champions league and the um um the in so i'm just about to get zoom bombed by my son asha <laughs> sorry it was going to happen at some point um the um but looking at the new champions league proposals and you've got the i think it's five seasons if you you know looking at the aggregate over the five season it brings into a sharp focus and maybe katarina you've got a view on this in terms of the weighting criteria that they use for qualification to champions league competition again if that's something the european commission may be looking at and to say that, you know, is this really fair or is this just a, 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 a essentially a mask to, to, to wed in certain clubs into the competition? Um, anyway, back to you, Chris. I mean, I'd be very interested to see what 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 Kat has to say, but certainly it 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 reduces the chances, or from my perspective, it reduces the chances of. Uh, you know, probably one of the six clubs that were involved in the ESL failing to qualify for the for the for the Champions League from 2024-25 because it will no longer be based solely on their sporting performance in, a, in, an, in an individual season. Um, and actually, I think it, it, there's a broader point to it as well. 
in that um, when you can, you know, there are academic studies, but but it, but it's also obvious just from looking at the, the winners of domestic leagues in, in European football, um, the, the, the Champions League and Champions League money has, has had an effect of reducing the competitiveness of, of leagues across Europe. Um, and actually I was, uh, you know, it was, it, it, it's interesting all the points Alexander raised about why why Bayern Munich, for example, weren't involved in this project. But but I also wonder if one of the reasons Bayern Munich is not involved in this project is because they, they've won the league the last eight years. And, and what is the risk of Bayern Munich ever missing out on qualifying for the Champions League? Seems 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 pretty minimal. Whereas the the the, the six English clubs, uh, at least until the UEFA reforms come into come into play, are at risk because two of them can't qualify on a on a on a on a year to year basis. So so in any given year, even if the, they occupy the top six positions, two of them will not be qualifying for the Champions League and getting and, and getting Champions League money. And what's your what's your view in terms of? One of the things is, you know, that we touched on is that, that what is a club and, you know, mm. yeah, what is your view on this in terms of, you know, the backlash? And we talked about, like Patricia mentioned about the social importance within, um, was in France. What, what do you have any views in terms of, from a regulatory standpoint, what, you know, should there be sort of tighter regulations from uh, UEFA or definitions of what is a club? Should we, should we start labeling certain, you know, organizations that they will prohibit them from using the word club if they're not actually what we would consider to be a club that's representative of their their fan base and their membership i mean it's an interesting question sean because if you look at the governance model that applies generally speaking to english football clubs they are all companies whose legal obligations are to act in the ways that that best creates value for their shareholders in the long term i mean that is the test in the companies act so from that perspective, the, 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 the executives at the, 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 the ESL6 were doing exactly what they, what they are required to do. Um, and, and aren't in, they, but aren't they also meant to take into account their stakeholders? And this is one of the other things in terms of, because <laughs> it seems to me that everything focuses on, on that side of, the, of, of corporate law, but not taking into account the fact that you're also meant to take into account, isn't this a bigger driver towards the sort of ESG, well, the environmental, social and governance? Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah, it's taking into account it, to the extent that it creates long-term value for the right. shareholders is, is, right. is my understanding. But I think there's, 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 an interesting, there's an interesting aspect to it, which comes about in relation to, to, to football clubs. And, and look, I say this as a, as a, as a, as a Newcastle fan. Um, there is, a, there is, a, there is a, a tension, I suppose, between the, the legal structure and the, the requirements of what you might call the legal equity to, to, to create best value for your shareholders and and the the fact that that football clubs are 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 different because they have a social role and a social value in a community and 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 you know are a source of of, of civic pride and, and 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 national pride on occasion um and so there is a huge amount of what you what i've always called emotional equity and emotional ownership of a of a football club um which is not reflected in the in the governance models that that apply in, in in English football. So, you know, from a from a strictly legal point of view, the the, the question for me comes, um, and it's it was really interesting to see the government pick up on this and, and talk about changing governance models. 
what is you know what is the what is the right way to accommodate this emotional ownership and emotional equity within the structure or the legal structure of ownership of a of a, of a football club well, uh, I guess in England. We've got so we've got, thanks for that because we've got a question from which is a related point, and this is the you know again this is for everyone now as well. But I guess the, we've got a question from Dan Salisbury Jones from ITV News who says he'd love to know like you know the government talked about intervene from a, from a UK perspective, but it's also uh, we heard from Patricia who said like the, the French government could intervene because of the makeup of sport in that country. To what extent do you think um, the government could and should intervene? And obviously, this has been a wider point in terms of the uh, uh, you know looking at the governance of football. Um, does anyone have a view, Chris, or anyone else? I don't think um, the government intervention after the fact would be appropriate. I think that that should be left to the regulatory authorities that are in place to assess what um, action could or should be taken. I think that the threat, and I, I mentioned this to you before we started, that the threat of a uh, competition markets authority investigation um, was one of the key weapons that Boris Johnson and the government deployed in messaging to the uh, clubs, um, because irrespective of whether or not they could or should have had arguments um, in their favour or against them, a, an investigation by the CMA would um, have really created a, an environment of risk, both for the clubs, for those six English clubs at least, um, and for the funders and others involved as partners in this endeavour, because when, uh, at what point do you actually enter into a project if the risk of government intervention by investigation looks significant? And do you think so, I mean, so, Graham, on that point, I think it's a great point you've raised about the, the, the Competition Markets Authority. Um, but while, while I was suggesting, sorry, and it was a bad, yeah, it was my, Dan asked a great question and I badly <laughs> edited it. But I was saying about, about, about the governance government of, intervention. If you're talking yeah. about government intervention here, I mean the one that's that's probably the most regularly spoken of is the fan representation on boards of football clubs or amongst the um, uh, amongst the structure in a football club. I mean it's been um, discussed, touted. Um, obviously, it's different to that. Uh, the, 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 the government stru structure that's the city in Germany, but some form of representation is really being promoted. And you can almost feel that there is fertile ground for it at the moment. Um, obviously, you've got private enterprise and large amounts of investment that will sit on the other side of that argument and be quite concerned about how they're going to operate their businesses with uh, with enforced intervention and and patricia as they as they're from a french perspective and alexander from a german and stella from an italian perspective looking at this you know, in the uk in the uk we've been talking there's been lots of discussion about setting up an independent regulator for football so um yeah there's an inquiry going on at the moment but having this body that looks at how the fa the premier league are run and how they license participants essentially branched off from any uh, commercial um, interest and involvement what's kind of your take because obviously in France we have this government involvement they say an authority or they delegate that out to, to French football yet we've seen that financial trouble that you're talking about in terms of the broadcast has there been a uh, sort of from the French perspective up to now has there been a view looking at I don't know Germany or France or Italy and saying hey you know, should we adopt more of a model like that or is everyone quite happy with how things are in France <laughs> 
and it'd be interesting to get the German Italian perspective. Uh, I mean, in France, in France, it's the federation. The federation is very strong because she can act on behalf of the states. So she don't need the states uh, uh, acting. She just had to act on behalf of the states. But for sure, in France, uh, all the, the organizing the competition, this is uh, on behalf of the state of the states. All commercial issues are private. So the Federation and the League are, they have two uh, caps. One commercial for, uh, for instance, uh, the TV, uh, TV rights. This is a, a, a private and goes to the civil court. But all, all, all staff who concern the organization of, of the competition is on behalf of the state with a delegation. So the state just has to say one word, like Macron and the ministers of the sport said, and the federation uh, cannot act differently because she has to, to she has a monopoly. And, and the monopoly create, of the competition. Yeah, doesn't that create attention though? Is that one of the reasons why the, the, there have been these media rights problems because of the fact that the, this, uh, you know, essentially it can change because they're basically political intentions. I don't understand the question. So, so is one of the reasons why the, the French uh, media rights landscape, the football media rights landscape has been so difficult? No, uh, no, no, not, no, nothing. Not, no, no, no. This right, is okay. totally different. No, no. This is a completely different issue. No, Stella, completely different thing. Thank you, Patricia. Stella, from an Italian perspective. Uh, no, I think uh, <clears throat> from an Italian perspective, uh, the government uh, could, could not have uh, a say or a legal action. I mean, in the sense that uh, it could not uh, Im impose uh, under the current landscape uh, sanctions or, or something like that. So the Federation has the monopoly, uh, is the regulator, is uh, the leagues are the event organizers. Uh, the leagues are uh, those who are entitled person to a, a, a law uh, to commercialize tea rights. So uh, as Patricia was saying, uh, commercial uh, issues and consequences and potential damages and stuff like that uh, would be um, under uh, the, the, the possible legal action from sports stakeholders. Thank you. And, and Christopher, you got your um, hand up. Yeah, I just I, I just wanted to, to to jump in and and on the, the the question of the the independent review of governance. Um, I I would actually slightly disagree from what Graham said. I, I I would welcome the government taking a look at you know how governance works in football and is it is it is it is it fit for purpose and and fit for what purpose? Um, largely because I don't think anyone else is in a position to do it. Um, you know, the, 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 the Premier League is a trade association for its its 20 member clubs, essentially. Um, the FA, I'm not sure, is, is, is structurally set up to, to, to be able to do that. So I don't feel the football industry has anything to fear from a, 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 a proper independent assessment of 
you know, what, 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 what should this sport be functioning for? What are we trying to, trying to achieve? Um, and how, how is that best achieved? And I say this not just from a, from a governance perspective in relation to issues like the ESL, but also in terms of the, you know, the long-term health and sustainability of the, of the game. Now, so many clubs, even now at Premier League level, are, are entirely dependent upon owner subsidies. Um, and, and sometimes that that is a great thing and they transform their clubs and you know, Sean's team Chelsea you know have, have won Sean tremendous Jones team please uh, Sean <laughs> Jones team sorry yeah. Sean, Sean Jones sorry not, not Sean Sean Sean, Sean Cottrell. sorry apologies um but you know Chelsea have been transformed into into a big club and have won tons of things because an owner has provided lots of lots of financing um but the uncomfortable thing even in that situation is any club requiring owner financing and owner subsidies is vulnerable to the, the, the continued health and interest of one individual. Um, and, and that, that individual may stay committed for a long time and that's fine. But, you know, we've seen situations in English football where uh, clubs have required owner financing and, and that owner has, for whatever reason, been unable to provide it. So, so Chris, sorry, just, oh, oh, it's my fault for, for my bad time management. So apologies to all the speakers for not getting to Q&A quicker. Um, I wanted to give all the speakers a chance to, to speak. So hopefully everyone can stay with us for, the, for to get their questions answered. But so basically you think, yeah, an, an independent uh, regulator or at least an independent review of that is, is, is welcomed. And yeah. then, um, great. Uh, so now we've got, so David, and I'm just going to ask one more question from, from the floor and then I'll come to David Thomas, who's got his hand up. And then I'll come to Aravind, who's got his hand up too. So, um, uh, Katarina, I think this one for you. Oh, sorry, Alexander, I, for, I left you out in, in that. Did you have anything you wanted to? Problem. I, I think that um, our approach would be very similar to what um, Stella has mentioned uh, with regard to Italy. Um, sports associations um, enjoy the autonomy of association and they're able to regulate their own affairs. And um, whenever um, they um, act in an economic um, uh, capacity, uh, their um, regulations are also subject to supervision by the, um, for instance, competition authorities, um, for instance, in, in the field of TV, TV rights. Yeah. So um, there is some supervision in that, in that regard, but I would think that it's mainly left to the associations to handle this and that government would not necessarily or the parliament would step in to create um, um, new legislation uh, to regulate this, this area. I don't think so. Thank you. Um, and then Raphael Sch uh, Schroeder has asked, and this one for you, Katerina, um, would you think that the ISU president uh, will be against a Super League if it was yeah, if it was progressing um, and its clubs, since the league does not promote uh, competition, is not open to FIFA's umbrella. So I think you've kind of touched on this, but what do you think? Uh, yeah. Uh, ISU has been obviously in another sport and other facts, but it has provided some general rules that we can take and apply, uh, such as that uh, regulatory authority being monopolized by a private regulator is okay. Uh, even even it went so far as to hint that perhaps protection of economic interests might be one of the legitimate objectives because governing bodies do need uh, to finance the entire sport. Um, so there are some general rules that ISU has provided and uh, some of them uh, also concern the 
thing that you have mentioned earlier, the concerns, the access to market. Um, and that is uh, for competition lawyers might be the underlying uh, team in, in, uh, in many uh, aspects of football. For instance, um, the Super League that was created, uh, they did not have any access criteria. They just kind of for 23 years committed these 12 clubs or, or well, 15 to be uh, to, to a Super League. For 23 years, they have foreclosed the market uh, without having objective criteria to access, and, and, and sorry, uh, which they should have. And has anyone seen the? Has anyone seen the agreement? The, the, or the no, intention? No, no, that's. Has anyone that, seen it? That's no, no, uh, no. Th there's no um, agreement. Um, so, so in the theory, then, so it's a really uh, sorry. Just going. I want to get through. We've got sort of like questions, and I appreciate the people who've been waiting to get their questions answered. We need to go rapid fire for this part. But so, so in terms of your thing, in theory, the ISU could provide some helpful. Um, Absolutely. Uh, brilliant. Thank you. Um, now we've got Aravind, this one of who's. I put his the hand up and waiting very patiently. Would you like to go ahead? Sure. Yeah, uh, thank you, Sean, so much. Uh, I basically wanted to, I'm a sports law student, I used to be, and now I wanted to ask a legal question because uh, the question is what basically stops a set of independent commercial entities? Because all six clubs are independent commercial entities and what basically stops them to break away and form their own marquee franchise-based league, which was a situation right now. So in principle, it's, of, of course, it's morally wrong. And, you know, there's so, no so you're basically just saying, so, so what currently prevents the six club, the, the English teams, uh, yeah, breaking but, away and setting up their own closed, closed uh, league? Also, another, another question was, can they be legally barred by competition law from creating a monopoly? And also, do the clubs, those that have pulled out, they need to pay a fine for breaking out of the binding agreement to the entity that is the ESL. Right, okay, uh, here was a Chris, you would put your hand up. We'll just do one at a time, I guess. Uh, yeah, just quickly, I, I won't, you know, I'll leave the competition law aspects to the experts. The, 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 for, for a Premier League club, the regulatory barriers are, uh, you know, as Graham pointed out, the, the contractual obligations that they have, they have signed up to, um, which, is, which are embodied in the Premier League handbook. Um, there, there is provision for them to, 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 to leave if they want. Um, clearly that would be fairly unattractive unless you had somewhere else to go because you, you, you know you wouldn't make any you wouldn't make any money um there's also provision that if you did resign from the premier league you have to indemnify all the other clubs for any losses that the league uh, well the league and the the, the 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 other clubs incur by virtue of um you know you you leaving the the competition in terms of the the commercial contracts and the broadcasting contracts that the the the, the league has league has entered into um so I, I, and and given who the six clubs were i imagine that uh, the, you know the, the the commercial damage to contracts would have been quite sizable so you you, you, you there's a, there would be a strong disincentive i believe from from resigning for the leagues with the slight caveat of maybe if you timed it for the end of next season when the broadcast contract was ending you could sort of minimize the the liability but um they they they, they could in theory get out of it but uh, uh, by and large i think it'd be unattractive thank you um next up i think this is one for uh, patricia um do fifa uefa have a legal basis to threaten players on super league clubs and this is uh, so with bans for the national team play so, you know, you touched on this in, in, I think at the beginning, you were saying that you felt it was you know, appropriate for FIFA or UEFA to sanction the National Association. Um, 
do you, would they would you sanction do you think there could be sanctions against national teams or just the the association themselves i mean if you look at at uh, all the status fifa status and uefa status article 49 article 41 um I, I would say that for FIFA or UEFA, the easiest way and the more efficient way is to say to the national association, look, your duty is to comply with the status. If you do not comply with the status, you will be banned as a federation for all competition, or we, you will be banned. It's ridiculous to think that UEFA and FIFA would ban a player. I can't believe this. This is ridiculous. But because the, the, as Sean said, uh, the player didn't decide, he decided nothing. But another interesting way would be for FIFA to say, okay, look, if you're not going, if you want to play in other competition, you will not be able to ask for the FIFA protection and you will not be able to ask for FIFA RSTP to apply. If FIFA RSTP do not apply to you and to your players, you are not allowed to ask for Article 17, Article 14, so, so, so not for anymore. Those that, so Go those that out. That's the regulation and status. The regulations on and the FIFA RSTP gives a, a huge protection, not only for players, a huge protection, and it's a whole transfer system. So if you want to go out, okay, go out. Yeah. But without, you cannot use our protection, our case law, our etc. So, so that's is, why I think that the, main, the, the pressure is more on the national association than on the clubs and the players. It's an interesting point, and I think it's going to prove that politics is going to play as equally as much an important role as the law here. Um, and that was from, by the way, that question was uh, Seismon uh, Semberg. So thank you for that. Um, next up, uh, we had one from, which is again probably one for Katerina, but also for Alexander. Um, what are some of the presidents around breakaway leagues competitions from uh, FIBA Euro League, and do they give any clues as to how this might end? I know you touched on this earlier, but is it the case that we're just still waiting? Because it's, as you said, we haven't had had the the the, the case been sitting there for six years. I think you said, Katerina. And we just there's nothing we can conclude from that at the moment. Is that correct? Or I'm I'm happy for Katerina to to answer this because I don't have an update on on that uh, pending um, situation um, in front of the commission. Katerina, maybe you have heard something. You've um, argued earlier that it might be a catalyst for, for the commission to pick up the work again in this, in this regard. Um, but um, no, I think what we've seen in, in the EuroLeague uh, FIBA dispute, for instance, is uh, something that we've now seen with the preliminary injunction that was granted in Madrid, a very similar preliminary injunction granted uh, in 2016 by the courts in Munich. It was later lifted for procedural reasons but um, the, the argument was that um, FIBA could not sanction national associations, what Patricia just told, um, talked about, um, for um, those national associations not going after their clubs participating in EuroLeague or EuroCup at the time. Um, so, um, I mean, both um, have lodged complaints. EuroLeague has co uh, complained against FIBA. FIBA has complained against uh, EuroLeague in front of the European Commission. We've had several statements also by the, by the commissioner 
on this case, but we don't have a, um, any clue yet um, how this is going to be decided anytime in the future. And it's, it's certainly interesting. I did an interview with Adam Lewis and Jonathan Taylor QC in which uh, Ad, uh, Adam Lewis said that, that he thinks that you know, there's going to be increasing challenges under competition law, amongst others, uh, for, for the regulators across sport as, the, you know, as, as situations like this occur more and more and more. So they best get prepared to deal with them. Um, we've got a great question from Jeff Pearson, um, digging from our um, UK uh, representatives, although it's based in the UK. Think of uh, domestic law. What legislative changes do you think would need to be would be sorry needed to move to a fifty plus one fan ownership model? Anyone want to touch on that, Chris? Everyone wants to. No one wants to touch on it. So, do you think in in the UK we can see the um, government saying, right, we have to have a fifty plus one rule? Graham. I, I, I think the chances are extraordinarily slim. I, in the same way as I don't think the European Commission wants to get involved in the European arguments because they see it as a hot potato, I think that um, the government here is very keen to guide and to send messages, but to actually have full-scale intervention and interfere with um, private interests, I think they'll shy away, well away from that. I, I just, I just don't think that that's on the agenda. And, and just to come back on Christopher's point about governance, um, you know, the last major governance issue in football actually involved FIFA, and not only did it involve governance at the core, but it involved FBI investigations and everything else. You know, the the impact of that has um, has been significant. But remember, there were allegations there of a very, very serious wrongdoing. In this instance, we're talking about the balancing act between private and public interests, and if you like, culture and history. Those aren't really topics for government intervention, are they? Um, you know, I think this is, uh, to, to come back to you on that point, it, this is more about um, the regulatory culture and sensitivities and the PR and, if you like, the product. Um, I know this sounds like, yeah. the, like the business, but it is the product at the end of it which binds it together, which pulls the um, pulls the money and the punters and gets kids playing in the park. They enjoy the game because they see it and they play it. And that's, you know, isn't this, isn't this the uncomfortable tension that's there at the moment that, that I agree with you in the sense of when you look at the product where you go and fans, you know, are they consumers? Are they, you know, I say to people all the time, what is a fan? Can you define a fan, a supporter, a customer, how, how, how a football club would define that differs greatly. Um, but isn't one of the problems is that as we've seen that, that, that certain owners of football clubs have got away with doing, things that are questionable in whether they're interested, like setting off grounds and doing other stuff, right? On the basis, though, that they're trying to protect what they would loosely term as a community asset, not legally, but they would say we're an asset to the community, we're on the supporters and everything else. So essentially they've had a pass. You know, they get a lot of exemptions under you know, various laws and get a lot of goodwill for people on the basis that their whole um, PR initiative, as you would call it, or the branding is around how much they influence and impact the community. Unlike, they say, for example, like an, an American football team or others who have a for profit business out and out. But we're in the middle ground, aren't we? We're not back in the sort of um, early early part of the last century where football was largely a pursuit of the amateur um, and we're not in the position of the fully franchised game in the US where there are the minor leagues, but there's a big gap between the, 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 the franchises, the minor leagues and the varsity work and the grassroots. We're, we're somewhere in the middle and we're 
at that point where the professional game is actually improving and has been improving for many years. You talk about the misbehaviour of the few, but largely speaking, the clubs have improved. They've improved their facilities. They've improved local facilities. There's a culture of ESG, actually, of giving back to the community. We've seen all of the clubs named um, in, 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 in pretty much every club in the Premier League has given back to their community. But it's about fine-tuning. I agree yeah. with you. And it's about how do you introduce that kind of... It's also early warning system as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what's happened over the last few days or been revealed over the last few days has been prepared behind closed doors. You know, some of that, and I think there was mention as well about whether or not there, there were current breaches. Well, it does look like the um, duty of good faith has not... Um, or doesn't appear to have been complied with. Um, so there are some issues there along the way. I mean, look, so, these so, are all so, speculative, so, aren't no, they? I, we don't know for certain what's so actually go, go happened, to, but we know what we want. To, sorry, go. Thank you, Graham. So I'm going to go to David, then to Chris. Um, so uh, interesting point. So it's a balancing act. I love that. As a, as a, yeah, that's where we're at. We're in this all balancing act. And I should say, for clarity, I'm not suggesting that the Premier League clubs don't do stuff for their community or contribute to it or not enhanced in any way. I was just saying that, that there seems to be this tension that's there um, that you described. Uh, David? Yeah, I, I'm just going to throw in the non-legal perspective here. And I know, lawyers, <laughs> I know lawyers like looking at things almost <laughs> slightly backwards because it's based on what the law currently is versus what it might be in the future. Uh, from my perspective, we're living in a COVID, post-COVID world, depending on where you are, um, where the government spent the last year doing pretty much what it wants. Uh, and what the government's done over the last year would have been unthinkable a year ago, you know, prior to COVID. The government sunk it's in the UK has sunk huge amounts of money into supporting the entire economy. It's sunk huge amounts of money into supporting sport. So the idea that it's only going to intervene on the edges, I think is, I, I don't agree. I, I think the government now is in a position where it feels it can do whatever it wants. It's under no obligation from EU law because of Brexit. So you know, if they want to intervene in this European Super League, they will they could potentially ban foreign ownership. They could potentially nationalise these teams. Yeah, they've effectively nationalised the railways. So, I know I said I was going to come to Chris, but Katarina, on that point, just from the so, the, so, the Brexit So I just wanted point. to throw yeah. throw that in that that you know we're, we're living in a different world. We're living in a COVID world now, where anything is possible. And and Katarina, from from a, a competition law perspective, does that you know what's your view on that? From what David said. Uh, could, could you ask me the question again, please? Yeah, so so David was saying basically with the government having so much influence and now that we've uh, Brexited as such, um, the government could you know intervene and prevent foreign ownership um, if they really wanted to. Um, uh, what, what sort of implications does that have? Because, you know, I'm not going to say I'm an expert in what's been I've been largely ignoring. Put my they could, they could have always prevented foreign ownership uh, if the foreign ownership involves uh, foreign ownership outside the EU. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. In yeah. that sense, it's not uh, different. So, for instance, Qatar yeah. or uh, Russian uh, billionaires uh, could or still, American. you know, they, they are in exactly the same situation Thank as you. before Christopher. Brexit. 
I just, I just you know, as, as a, so, so go Christopher first, then Graham. Yeah, I just say as a quick aside, let, let's not just say foreign ownership. There's good and bad foreign yeah. owners. There's good yeah. and bad English owners. So let's, let's, let's not just say it's all yeah. to do with, with foreign owners. Um, but I think, you know, the ownership model is is the question here. And, and, and uh, you know, how, how should that be? What is the appropriate balance to be taken? Um, but one thing that I think has been a trend in football over, over, over the last 20 odd years is, the owners of football clubs are increasingly insulated from the key one of the key stakeholders, which is the supporter groups in English football. Um, you, you only have to look at largely how impotent fan protests have been over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, one of the surprising things about the recent situation is fans were unhappy and something happened that the fans wanted. But you, know, you, you can look at any number of examples of, of huge fan protests, which have just been water off a duck's back. I mean, green and gold at Manchester United. I think Newcastle fans have been protesting against Mike Ashley for 15 years. Um, you know, and that's very different. I mean, when I was when I was a child growing up in Newcastle, there was a huge protest against the ownership group of Newcastle United. But the owners then were local businessmen and local, you know, the chairman was a local solicitor. So fans in the locality could have an impact and an effect in those days. Now, one of the consequences of having very wealthy owners that have that, that don't necessarily have links to the area is they can ignore those protests and it doesn't make too much difference to them. So there is a there is a there is a question here of how do you re, slightly rebalance that to give this key stakeholder group more of a say and more of a more of an input than they are actually able to have under the model of football ownership and, in the and, Premier League that's developed from for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and so Graham, you wanted to say something. So I'll let you go now. I've got a question and that'd be a quick No, it was it was just a very simple point, and that is the government have made uh, financial provision and facilities available for all businesses in the form of the CCFF scheme, which provided um, very large sums for all businesses, and the Silbill schemes. Um, and they are effectively fixed term, fixed short-term loans. And some football clubs did, like many other businesses in different sectors, take advantage of that. But those loans will have to be repaid at some point. Um, and that's where, you know, what happens in the post-pandemic uh, post era um, is that all businesses will be facing the same transition and the government can't intervene in every sector. And that's why I think that this will be more likely than not left to the business of football and those who are stakeholders in the light of public, um, if you like, transparency and, and the glare of attention that's currently being created to actually clean their own house. And that's how I, 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 def yeah, I, great, I don't I'd love, think it will be. I think it's a great definitely. point, but I think there's yeah, one thing I would love to see. If anyone who's listening has got time to do it, and maybe Kieran Maguire at the Price of Football, or, or um, was it Swiss Ramble, or someone like that can do it. Um, I would love to do what the purported losses are at the moment, right? Give against the money paid to agents, and also money lost due to certain interest rates on other loans that they've got, or other debt that they've. I know that I know that some of those guys have done some analysis on that, but it'd be great to see an overlay between the two. That like maybe there's an alternative solution that's not, uh, you know, necessarily a breakaway league. Um, from everyone's perspective. Do you think, um, yeah, respected to your jurisdiction, just do a quick poll. Do you think there's now going to be a much more, um, you know, given the, the influence that fans have had on this situation, particularly in the UK, um, do you think that there's going to be um, 
uh, a shift in momentum, a bit like we've seen other movements that have taken place around the world. Do you think there's going to this is going to empower fan groups uh, going forward, and we'll we'll see a, a, a sort of a shift in the discussion of their participation in the decision making processes, if not the ownership of football clubs uh, going forward? Do you think this is kind of a watershed moment? Yes or no? Yes, maybe it's time for FIFA to understand that fans should be a stakeholder and to invite the fans. Because the, the FIFA evolves a lot. Everything changed since the 90s. Now there is a social dialogue, there is uh, all the stakeholder. Uh, uh, but now we discover just from today that fans are with FIFA. Fans are with UEFA. So maybe it's a time to open the door to the, to, to, to the fans. What do you, what do you think, guys? That's interesting. Anyone else? Who wants to go? Go, go, Chris. I'll do it quick. I would, I would agree with uh, Patricia. I think that um, this is um, going to happen. It has been happening in Germany already before. And I think it's going to be, we see wider uh, developments in this field as well. And I think another very important stakeholder that will um, rise, I think, is uh, players in, in all of this. Uh, as Patricia mentioned in the beginning, they haven't been a part of this uh, decision to, to break away. And I think um, uh, with regard to EuroLeague and, and uh, um, FIBA, you already see that with the EuroLeague Players Association, a players association which specifically deals with players uh, in playing in the EuroLeague. And we'll see more and more um, players associations popping up um, or player representation groups that uh, want to have an active say in these developments as well. That's a good, that's a great point. Next, who wants to go next? Well, I'd I'd, I'd say my my answer is yes, and 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 I think from the reason is from an English perspective, it feels like there is a broader fan movement than than has existed in the past as a result of the what's happened in the last few days it isn't just the, the you know the loudest unreasonable voices on twitter who if the club won the european cup would be complaining about you know they didn't play football in the right way in the traditions of the club you know they always are going to complain about something at their football club it's a wider it's a wider movement and it's a it's a bigger voice Great. Uh, uh, okay, I, got, I was going to get Stella out and said it. So I got Stella then Sean. So. Uh, thanks. Now I would say hopefully. I mean, hopefully, uh, the, the big institutions like uh, FIFA and UEFA will take the chance to increase increase transparency and uh, and change part of the rules for, for instance, enhance solidarity mechanism to. Uh, to, to, to enhance the financial situation of all clubs because uh, the, very, the very starting point here was uh, lack of finances. So this was uh, a an attempt to get uh, increased finances. And so hopefully um, this will be the, the, the very goal for, uh, to, to the benefit of all clubs, not just those um, participating, I mean, uh, in the very, I don't know, final stages, but to all clubs participating in European competitions with respect to UEFA, or in any case to have a double thought also from, uh, from FIFA, because this is very, has shown to be the very issue. Brilliant. Thank you, Stella. Uh, sure. Um, two things. And firstly, I wouldn't assume that Chelsea fans angry with Chelsea are in love with UEFA. Uh, <laughs> that that simply doesn't follow. Um, the other problem is that when clubs have experimented with fan engagement before, it can be quite difficult to answer your question, Sean, which is who are fans? 
So firstly, it tends to be local fans or what we now must call legacy fans, I guess, without necessarily taking account of the fact that the overwhelming majority of these clubs' fan bases are now abroad. The second problem is the, uh, to quote an old uh, political philosophy, you're always on attack from the left. So as soon as you appoint fans to be involved in even just consultation, another group of fans appears and says that they're the true voice of the fans and that the people involved in engagement are sellouts and have been institutionally captured. So you don't, there's no obvious way of identifying and then engaging with fan groups. So whatever you do is going to involve a degree of artificiality. Thank you. David? Uh, I just wanted to come back slightly on my 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 last point, of, if, if that's all right. Um, yeah. Just to say, I wasn't anti uh, <laughs> anti foreign owners. The point was, <laughs> all, all six are, are foreign owned. If you count um, if you count the Spurs guy, whose name I forget, who's he's a tax exile in Bermuda. Um, but other than that, I, I, I do yeah, and yeah, the European Super League seems to have gone to bed for the moment. So the government court. Of course, the government aren't going to do anything massively drastic now because it's gone to sleep. However, I think um, that those powers are you know, potentially there should they be needed. I, I also think what's interesting is, you know, there's this, you know, is it a false belief that UEFA and FIFA are strengthened by this? Because I think the one thing that for me that came out of this is if the clubs decide to go, it was really the fans stroke the government that were the that were the areas or the, the the institutions that were preventing the, the clubs from going. UEFA seemed fairly toothless to me, um, but saying that having failed, I think the clubs leverage going forward, at least for it, it, in the short term, is is reduced. And and Graham, fan ownership or fan involvement in decision making? Can you see that being? I I think fan representation. Um, and acknowledgement and involvement is it, there's there, I, I can't see the downside to it actually I, I think disrupting the ownership structure I can see lots of downsides and I can see that having a significant chilling effect on the business of, of sport um, and uh, but I but actually having uh, recognizing the customer and listening to the customer is I just don't see how yes. that can be a bad thing. I, sense, I, take, yeah. I take Sean's point, actually. Um, what does that mean in terms of, you know, is it the local customer? Is it the, the local participant? Um, it, it's a complicated way to introduce an, an independent, um, but um, stake, a stakeholder into the, uh, into the structure. But there must be a way around. But the, I think this is the, the, the wider point here as well, is that if we don't, like as a business owner myself, if we don't ask why you're, why people are using your service and engaging with your service, right, you can end up in sort of quite perverse outcomes. And I think particularly in football and in sport, that can be quite pronounced, as, it, as has been the case in the Super League. You say, why are people, uh, you know, Man United fans or why are they uh, Liverpool fans? And obviously, um, you know, as John Henry publicly apologised, as I saw on the BBC News earlier, got that vastly wrong in terms of, you know, why they actually engage with, uh, for example, Liverpool Football Club. So I think, you know, maybe this is something that, that they should be very clear on in terms of what is a... A, a fan in its various different forms. It might make help their decision-making processes slightly better. Now, um, first of all, thank you to all of the speakers. We've run out of time. I know that we could probably go on and we've got 
some amazing questions there and I feel terrible. Normally you get through a lot more, so I apologise uh, for not getting through more of them, but I also wanted to give all the speakers an opportunity to, to speak. And um, so if you, I think what we'll try and do is pull off some of the questions and we'll come back and see if we can answer them in a, you know, either from a, if they've already been answered in a summary form on a document or, you know, this is being recorded, you will be able to access it afterwards. Hopefully we've covered um, most of the uh, points. The one thing I wanted to say is that every speaker here has done it uh, completely free of charge, giving up their time out of goodwill and in good faith. As you can tell from their contributions, they are leading figures in their respective fields and jurisdictions. So really appreciative of it. Thank you guys. I can't say you enough for, for pulling together. And this is, you know, if I'll give any advice to anyone, if I was looking to get answers, um, to some of these difficult questions, I would go to experts. <laughs> so please do reach out to genuine experts when you're trying to navigate this, and as you can tell, very complex area. Thank you all for your wonderful questions. Thanks for, you know, I think it was like 600 people or more who tuned in. Thank you for the 300 people who remained, even though we've run over. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in this type of topic, I should have said, and I'm terrible at doing this, but we have got a football law conference where we're looking at, you know, more narrow areas in around 30 days time and obviously this has sort of blown up the agenda slightly so, so we're now re restructuring it slightly but if you're interested in this area do go to law and sport you know sign up become a member so you can do it for free or you can pay um otherwise we'll keep the conversation going you know if you did enjoy it please do tell people and of course if you enjoyed the contribution from the speakers please do connect with them and reach out to them and obviously praise them um uh if you found their contributions helpful so other than that uh, thank you guys very much I really appreciate your time and contributions and hopefully that provided some clarity for everyone. Ciao. <laughs>